And so my biggest advice to an artist is to first figure out what jobs they want to be accountable for in their business, and then figure out what the gaps are and who they need to hire in order to execute that. Hi everyone, and welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host Jason, and you'll hear from our other co-host Rucker soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. Today, our guest is Milana Lewis, co-founder and CEO of STEM, a platform making it easier for artists, managers, labels, and brands to distribute music, manage contracts, share data, split royalties and stay independent. After six years working in talent agencies, spending the majority of that time as a digital media agent with United Talent Agency, Milana started STEM in 2015 with the goal of simplifying how musicians and their teams pay collaborators. At the start of 2020, STEM announced Scale, a $100 million cash advance program aimed at giving artists a way to access alternative funding with fewer restrictions than a label typically imposes. This year, Inc. featured Milana on their Female Founders 100 list. In this episode, we talked to Milana about the current state of music distribution, financial tools for artists, and how STEM makes it all easier. Please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Milana Lewis. Hello, Milana. Hi, thanks for having me. For sure. Thanks for making the time. So we want to start out with kind of like your beginnings. Um, and I want to start with your gravitation towards film at a young okay. age, if that's right. So please correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. But can you talk a little bit about the seeds of how your love with film started? Favorite films, some kind of really cool experience you had going to the theater as a kid, whatever that may be? Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, I, I kind of want to go even back further because I am a child of an immigrant family. We moved to the States in 1991 when I was four years old from Vilnius, Lithuania. And for anyone who's familiar with what was going on in Russia in the early 90s, um, is probably where that it was not a good place for a Jewish family to live because there was uh, a lot of anti-Semitism happening. And more importantly, Lithuania was trying to separate its independence from the rest of the Soviet Union. So we came here. Um, I was around four years old. And the way that I understood American culture was through television and film. So I learned the English, the English language back when I was still living there, um, just through watching kids' TV shows and cartoons that many of you guys probably watched as well. Um, so for me, storytelling and filmmaking was both what I was raised on and how I was raised, because most of the time my parents were working through the early years of uh, even us living in America, and I was pretty much raised on television. And so a lot of my ideals and norms and the way that I learned how to assimilate into American society was through watching content. And I became in love with storytelling um, and sort of like the American dream per se that I witnessed through television. Uh, so much so that in high school, um, <laughs> I actually got out of having to take math classes through the traditional school program because my parents didn't really like the way that math was taught by American schools and they liked Russian math instead, which is apparently like a whole new trend where there's like Russian math tutors that now a lot of kids go to just to learn that way of um, computation or calculation, I should say. And instead I got to do extracurricular in school. And the school that I went to was a public school and it had a program called TV 10. And that was a program where uh, we had this whole production facility that we could create local programming for. So we, as a part of TV time, you had to audition and apply to be accepted. We could make um, weekly like school news broadcast shows. We broadcasted all of the local sports shows. So I learned how to like record and comment on football games, basketball games. We made short films. We funded the whole program through selling advertising and commercials that then we as students had to produce for local businesses. So I became obsessed with just content production. Um, and I really wanted to go to film school. But my parents being Russian immigrants were like, we didn't come to this country for you to have a bullshit degree, right? That was their word. Right. Um, so you can pick yep. either being a doctor or a lawyer and get like a real degree that's gonna give you real sustainability and um, stability as a person. And I was like, shit. 
but I just want to do film. Like I just want to tell stories and play make believe the rest of my life. And what was really gut wrenching for me about hearing that from my parents was the fact that they were creators themselves. Both of them were incredibly musically inclined. My dad uh, was in a touring band for most of his twenties until he had to get a real job and he became an engineer. My grandfather survived. Both of my grandfathers were musicians. One of them survived the Holocaust um, by actually playing music to the Nazis and being moved camp to camp. Um, uh, my other grandfather was also a musician and uh, played in the, in the uh, I think it was the orchestra coming out of World War II. Um, and so I was like, but all of you guys are creators. Like I'm getting this from you and yet none of you can make a living performing or creating because you had to get real jobs. And I just like, that didn't sit well with me. Um, Cause I was like, how sad is it that someone wants to spend most of their life creating, but is forced to take on a job that does otherwise. Right. And in my experience, in my generation, we were creating a lot. And I was able to learn how to create in high school. And in college, I did do a year at Michigan State um, studying the pre-law path and just knew that wasn't for me and uh, got my mom comfortable with the idea of me going to UCLA for the film program, but just for the summer, she thought. Because she's like, oh, summer's a great time to do extracurricular things, right? As long as you can pay for yourself to do it, you can go out there. So I did that. Um, I got a, <laughs> I used Facebook to cold message people that worked at companies like Disney or Lionsgate and you know, this is back in the day where you could see what classes people were taking at your school, but you could also see what companies people worked at. You can click on that company name and see everyone that worked there. And I would just DM them and ask them to pass along my resume to whoever was in charge of internships and ended up landing uh, an internship with um, Toby McGuire's production company while he was filming. I think it was like the second Spider-Man movie. So that was my in the industry. Um, and you know, from there, uh, went to school alongside working. And funny enough, before my senior year, I applied uh, for student loans and I was paying out-of-state tuition at the time to graduate and I got rejected and it was 2008. And I was like, okay, well, I can't afford to go back to school. What do I do? And at that point, I had been assisting a manager that represented a lot of young screenwriters and directors, because this was sort of my trajectory of getting more work in the film business. Mm -hmm. And his advice to me was, don't worry, go into a talent agency. You're going to have to do it anyways at some point. You're going to have to go to the mailroom. You're going to have to pay your dues, work as an assistant. So you might as well do it now. And after a year, you'll establish residency. So if you ever want to go back to college and graduate, you can. And then you'll have that done. And so the minute you graduate, you'll qualify for better jobs because everyone else graduating is going to go into the mailroom and you'll be in a better position to do something else. So I followed his advice and I did that. And I started the mailroom at Endeavor right before they merged with William Morris um, and was an assistant through the merger in the MP Lit department working with screenwriters and directors. And a lot of the writers that I was gravitating towards were ones that had very unique voices where like they didn't fit within like the traditional studio system. It was writers that I got to work with, which now when I say the names, you'll know, but back then there were no, there were people that you may not have heard of, but to give you an idea, it was guys like Sam Esmail, who's the creator of Mr. Robot, Alan Yang, who created uh, Masters of None at the time. He just got a job working as a staff writer in Parks and Recreation. Um, Brad Inglesby, who is now uh, the screenwriter behind uh, Mayor of Easton, right? These are all shows that are very like left of center and very much indie voices that have only become commercial successes because of the, ex the explosive growth of streaming that created all this new uh, ways for audiences to find more niche type of genres and content that became more commercial. Um, I know this is getting like very heavy on the film side, but long story yeah, short, yeah. Uh, really got familiar with the indie filmmaking model, became obsessed with it, but also saw how difficult it was to get film made and how many years it took. Um, and similarly, this was during the time of the rise of YouTube. And a lot of the new filmmakers and voices that I was discovering was not through the screenplays being 
spread within the agency walls, uh, it was more through discovering talent through short films they were making and self-distributing on Vimeo and YouTube. And I became obsessed with that. Um, and got to know a lot of those creators before anyone else did, because I was ballsy enough to email Chad Hurley at YouTube and Casey Poe at Vimeo with my Lily Morris email address and say, hey guys, I work with the largest talent agency and we work with these big name directors and have been discovering talent. So if you see them, would love to know them. I would love to know about them and scout them out before they hit the homepage. Um, let me know. And they would send me video links and I would share them with other agents and they ended up signing a couple of these cool young directors who ended up making movies. Um, and when I pitched the idea of being a digital media coordinator uh, to the department, they were like, we're in a recession. Like this isn't a full-time part <laughs> doing this because there's nothing else to do. Um, and I was like, well, shit, this makes no sense. Why is Hollywood not embracing this new generation of talent? And why is no one paying attention to what's going on in the internet that's going to entirely change this business? Um, and I was like, you know what, maybe I missed something in my senior year of college. I should go back and graduate and figure out what that was because none of this makes sense to me. So I ended up drop, I ended up leaving the mailroom after a year and a half or not the mailroom, but the agency program. Cause at that point I was on the desk, um, and going back to UCLA, but instead of graduating the film program, I ended up making up my own major because I became less obsessed with the art of creation and filmmaking and more obsessed with studying the audience and the nature of how consumption was changing and how people of my generation who were raised on spark notes, how they would consume content differently because we didn't have to work through understanding a book. We could read the summary version and pass the test. And I think because of how accessible information's been to us and how much content there is out there, our attention spans are shorter. We have an entirely different process of digest of digesting information and sharing it that I thought our brains were completely rewired um, as humans. And so what does that mean for the media world and how people create and reach audiences in the future? And that's what I became obsessed with. In 2016, you wrote a really personal STEM blog post um, that really, I think, made a lot of sense the way you've kind of seen film and music as like very similar mediums, even though from a business perspective, of course, they're very different. I wanted to quote something that I thought was really interesting. It says, quite honestly, the role of being a talent agent never felt right for me. I'm not incentivized by money. I'm driven by novelty and pioneering new ways of bringing ideas to life. And then you went on to say, you, you talk about a little about how at UTA, you know, eventually you came to UTA and you found that uh, the leadership there seemed to align with kind of your role as a digital media agent and, and the teams you were working with. Can you talk about that period and some, some cool highlights or stories that um, happened during that time? Yeah. Um, the, so the talent agencies are so different and the cultures within them could not be more different too. And I got to witness what happens when two entirely different cultures clash into one company, which is what happened when Endeavor and Lay Morris came together. Endeavor was led by Ari Gold, or sorry, Ari Manuel, whose character Ari Gold is inspired by. So right. very much his personality. He has this like hyper aggressive, is really um, sort of, you know, he leads that company by by instilling a sense of fear in people. You're like afraid to fail and you're afraid to be number two. And it was through his leadership that they did pretty much like a hostile takeover of William Morris, which was very much the legacy incumbent talent agency that was very comfortable in their market position that wasn't innovating fast enough. And the people who were there had like a sense of ego because they thought that they were already with the dominant players, right? Whereas Endeavor was very much like the disruptor in the space. Um, so I got to see how those two agencies merge and sort of the challenges and the culture clash that it came from those companies combining. Um, and UTA was at the time, uh, how do I say this? Um, <laughs> they were like fourth in line, right? They were like the agency that like everyone likes, but the thing that, but they weren't the biggest player. They weren't the most aggressive. They were kind of like the underdog at the time. And now that's entirely yeah. changed because they've grown so much. But um, one thing that they were thought of is like being boutique. And so being boutique and being nimble 
and being early, you can innovate and there's no, there's not as much risk. So they're the first agency to really invest in digital media. And I was really attracted to them um, because of that. And one of the things that really stood apart for them as an agency was that when they signed clients, they were really only interested in working with artists who were multi-hyphenates where they can really wrap all of the different resources and competencies of the agencies to support that person, where they could move across departments really elegantly, where they could be serviced as talent and filmmakers and writers and musicians all together um, and be highly collaborative around that. And for digital media, that's hyper important because online you can transition very easily between audiences, between genres, between formats, between products and between verticals. Um, And they were just uniquely set up to do that. And the mandate that I got uh, from Jeremy Zimmer, the CEO and Brent Weinstein, who hired me ultimately to lead the digital department. He's the leader of the digital department. I was his first hire. What they said to me was, we see that technology is going to change the face of the business. And as talent agents, it's our job to figure out how our clients navigate this new landscape and how they find opportunities to create things for themselves. And we want you to go and find and know every single tech company that comes out of the gate, every new platform and educate our clients on how to use that to build their businesses online. And I was like, whoa, that's really fun. And I was like, so what does my job look like? And they're like, whatever you want. Your job is to go and find out what the agency's strategy and digital looks like and how we build it out to a real business. And we're not in it for the money in the short term. We're in it for the long term. So for now, just go innovate and do cool stuff that no one else is willing to risk doing. Could you mention some of the highlights? I think Issa Rae was uh, your sign, right? Yeah, Issa Rae was super fun. Um, we found her on a YouTube channel that she had called Opera Black Girl. Uh, my partner in the TV lit department, Jay Gasner, uh, got really excited about her and brought her to me. And the first thing was like, let's make sure this girl can fund her own YouTube content. So we were early to partner her with Kickstarter um, to launch a, a Kickstarter campaign to be able to create more video content. Uh, then we uh, got her a book deal. We took the format and the content that she was making turned it into a book proposal, which ultimately landed her um, the TV show that we packaged around that book deal. And we got Shonda Rhimes attached to it and it became Insecure, the TV show. Um, the other thing I was really excited about, so Kickstarter was a, was a platform that I was just like super stoked on. I got in touch with Yancy, the founder from Kickstarter, and I said to him, I'm going to bring you the biggest projects you've ever seen on Kickstarter. And he's like, yeah, okay. And this is when like Hollywood was still not comfortable with crowdfunding at all. People were not in a place where they wanted to ask their fans for money. Um, and so what we did uh, was, I was like, Auntie, what are some big media products IP that you think your Kickstarter fan base would go crazy for? And he's like, well, it has to have a cult following. And I was like, all right, well, there's some, definitely some content that has cult followings, right? Like there's franchises and, a series and whatnot. And one of them ended up being Veronica Mars, the show. And I worked with Rob Thomas, who desperately wanted to take that TV series and make it into a film, but the rights were owned by Warner Brothers and they were not comfortable exploiting that in the film world and making a 20 to $40 million movie, which is what the budget would be for that. It just didn't fall within their parameters of what Warner Brothers does, right? Like they do huge blockbuster action films or they make really small indies, but something in the middle just wasn't part of their business model. So they weren't willing to greenlight it. And we said to them, well, great, if you're not willing to fund it, will you give us the right to ask the fans to? Because we believe that now that the show is available on Netflix, which was the right timing, there's new audiences that have discovered it. And so we think the fan base is much bigger than it was before. So it took us two years to convince Warner Brothers to let us get the license to launch a Kickstarter campaign to get the fans to fund the movie. And it was one of the most successful campaigns ever. I think we reached the goal in less than 24 hours and it exceeded it quite tremendously after that. So that was another big project we did. And then there were, you know, everything from comedians figuring out how to self-distribute their comedy specials to launching e-commerce sites and products with some of our celebrity talent ranging from Jennifer Lopez to Gwen Stefani, um, building and incubating businesses like Awesomeness TV, which is the Nickelodeon 
for the YouTube generation that ended up selling uh, to Viacom as well, ultimately. Um, and it was projects like that that I got to be part of, and it was super rewarding and super fun. So this is a good segue to talk about creators. Yes. In your article, Why I'm Doing This, you list eight realizations you made while working with DIY creators and institutional creators, so to speak, or talent that came up through more traditional means. So I'm just going to break the list into three major parts, and maybe you can speak to each part. The first four points had to do with collaboration. So collaboration being key to growth and audience development, the importance of profit sharing in addition to cross-promotion, the importance of collaboration agreements, and legal inefficiencies pertaining to those collaboration agreements. Can you talk about the importance of collaboration and why you, why it was so important to realize this? Yeah, I mean, uh, on YouTube at the time, there wasn't a great curate, curational area, right? It was all algorithmic driven. And one of the ways that people discovered other YouTube stars or other YouTube creators is through them guest appearing in other more popular creators' channels, right? You would swap audiences through collaboration. So it was both a fun way for creators to meet and mingle with other creators and create content that was slightly different than what they would make on their own. But more importantly, the strategy behind it was you bring your content and your audience and I'll bring mine. And that's how discovery was driven through that. Um, and we see that with music too, right? You see these really creative collaborations that launch artists in a whole new different way. It makes the smaller artists bigger, but it makes the bigger artists even cooler because they were the first to do it. Um, and we've seen it across the board in every genre. And even when two genres blend together, like Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus, like that was huge. Who would have expected that? But it was the two audiences of two totally different genres and two totally different generations that made this insane. And we see it now with all these remixes, right? An artist is a song and remixes it with 10 different artists, 10 different times, and they all bring their own audiences and it makes both of them stronger. So the, the next section of these realizations had to do with data. New metrics from digital deals. So like likes, follows, these more sort of marketing metrics, uh, so to speak, where talent and their teams wanted to see like revenue, essentially. And then the second is a lack of data literacy and or support. So can you speak to data in, yeah. in, in terms of these realizations? Yeah, I'd love to answer this, but you guys also live in this world, so I'd love to hear your lens on it as well. Um, but with these new digital platforms, they were able to provide data feedback to artists and clients that weren't able to get that data as quickly as they used to, right? Um, you, we used to put out a movie into theaters and you would have to wait a week or two to get box office opening weekend data to figure out who showed up and then even longer to get the demographic data. You put a YouTube video up within the first couple hours, you get to see that feedback and you can keep checking in that feedback after that. So there was all this data overload and people initially prioritized like um, the early metrics of like viewership, how many views, watch time, and then that became less relevant and it became more about engagement and it became more about sharing, right? So there are all these data points being created. And I think as a manager, you get disoriented. You're like, there's all these new platforms, all these new data points. How do you know what matters? And at the end of the day, there was a huge disconnect between consumption and revenue. And we're still seeing that today where artists would say, oh my God, I have so many followers. I have so many likes, I have so many views. And they get the check months later and be like, wait, what? Where's the disconnect? I thought I was doing really well. But the data that they were getting didn't necessarily translate to dollars. And for me, one of the pain points was managing our clients' expectations on what they should expect and what the conversion between consumption and revenue would look like. And so one of the early guiding principles of STEM was like, let's focus on data with a dollar sign in front of it first. And then from there, be able to defend and help contextualize that data with other supporting engagement and social and consumption data from there. Yeah, for us, I think... So a lot of our data is actually more of like the marketing stuff. So, you know, like the likes, the follows, the social media stuff, like Spotify monthly listeners, it's more, in, it is more engagement based than it is sort of revenue 
based. So I think it, it's, and it is harder for artists, I think, to be able to make that connection, especially because they don't have the resources or the teams necessarily, because you need that to be able to make that jump from, you know, those data points to actual dollar signs. So yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Jason. It's something we're definitely working on. Because obviously it's the thing people most understand and are most concerned with. But yeah, not totally. I mean, the first step to getting there for us, at least, is like being able to put all those data points from all those disparate sources into one platform, which in itself is just a huge task. So that that's the stage we're at right now. It's a huge endeavor, especially because there's a lot of janitorial work I'm sure you have to do to clean and scrub that data and map it correctly. Yeah. And there's also a lot of, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of politics in terms of what data um, certain people have and certain players don't want, you know, everyone to have all the data. So yeah, there's a lot of um, tricky things to navigate there. But speaking of that, so the final section of these realizations has to do with money. Um, lack of financial transparency, and then the fact that chasing money sucks. So can you speak a little more to that as well? Yeah. Um, so across YouTube creators, filmmakers, songwriters, producers, artists that we were working with, it was just a common thread. The reason why most people were afraid of being independent wasn't because they didn't think they had the money to do it on their own. It wasn't because they didn't think they had the team to do it on their own. It was literally because... They were like, fuck, if I make all this money, how am I going to pay people? Um, I'll never forget it. That was a conversation we had with um, the actor Brian Cranston. Right after Breaking Bad, he had a film that he wanted to do independently. And by that point, Veronica Mars on Kickstarter was already a huge success. So it wasn't that people were afraid of going to Kickstarter to get money. He was like, wait, so then I have to figure out how to pay everyone else once I once the movie's made and all that. He's like, you know how complicated these back-end deals are? And I was like, yeah, but now you're independent. You don't have a studio to do that for you or do you have a network? And I just couldn't believe that that was an actual real friction point. Because I was like, wait, this is the stuff that computers can fix. This is what software does and it should do. Um, and it wasn't just for artists of that scale that that was a pain point for. It was also for my YouTube star clients who were using TuneCore to make their music available direct to their fans. And yet I saw two things happening. One, uh, they would rush to get the songs out and then later negotiate the splits and only then would the parents realize that they're the ones who have to pay out from the tune court earnings to the songwriters and producers. And like, I'll never forget one of my client's moms calls me and she's like, wait, what, I have to do this? I was like, yeah, we made $30,000 on the, in the first month of sales. It's great. And she's like, wait, but who's going to pay the producers and what are, what are they owe? She's like, can you call the lawyers and get the split sheets? And, and wait, are we going to get paid every month? Does that mean that I have to pay them every month? Like, how is that going to work? And I was like, God damn it. In a world where Square and Stripe and Venmo exists, like in PayPal, like someone's built an app for this. They must have, right? And it turns out no one did. It didn't exist. And that's sort of where the idea for STEM came to me was that, all right, we're going to see that more and more content is going to be made available on more and more platforms with more revenue models and more data behind them. And yet there's absolutely no system to aggregate all that in one place and pay all the people that are responsible for creating the content. That's a problem. And that's the problem that I want to solve. So we're going to get into STEM yeah. in a second, but before we do, a lot of artists create because they can't imagine themselves doing anything else. And practical realities like money just don't even come into their minds. So what advice would you give to say a young artist that's like totally committed to their craft, but is blissfully consciously or otherwise um, unaware of the realities of the music industry? Yeah. Um, so I think of artists as, see, as founders and visionaries. And I can really relate to what they're going through because they're trying to translate their vision into a business. Even though they're not drawn to it because of the money, they're drawn to it because of, the, of what they want to get out there and eventually that should make money and should make them a living. 
Um, similar to me with STEM, like I'm not doing STEM because I think it's my exit plan for my life, right? I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I have this vision that haunts me. And I can't imagine living the rest of this world unless I try to solve this problem for everyone else. And I think for artists, storytelling is the same thing. Like they have to do it. Um, it haunts them if they don't. And as a founder and as a CEO, one of the biggest things that I've had to learn is understand what I want to do and what I'm uniquely positioned to do well, and then what I need to bring on other people to do for me. So typically an artist will bring on a manager and the manager becomes their right-hand partner to executing across the business. And one of the things that I've learned is that not all managers have the same skill sets and competencies. And I watch artists get really frustrated when they make the wrong decision and aren't aware of what they're looking for. And I'll sort of put manager competencies in two buckets um, and using sort of a technology here because it's how I've learned to think about things. Um, you either need someone who's going to be your chief operating partner or your chief product officer. So what's the difference between those two? The COO, their job is to figure out how to scale your business and how to find the right strategy for you as an artist and take you to the next level. And more of their job is about saying no to things than saying yes to things. So if you're the artist who wants full creative control over your product that has a vision for how you translate your sound into tangible product and brand, and that's your strength and you want to own that, but you want someone else to figure out how they put it in the market and scale it, then you want the COO manager for yourself. If you as an artist need help with developing your product, so taking those ideas and the vision you have for yourself, but you're not quite sure how to productize it, meaning how you get yourself in the room with the right songwriters and producers to help you collaborate to make those songs or how you create a cohesive story for the market about who you are as an artist and the world you're trying to build and the religion you're going to be selling to your audience to get them to be fanatical about it. You need a chief product officer type of manager. And so my biggest advice to an artist is to first figure out what jobs they want to be accountable for in their business and then figure out what the gaps are and who they need to hire in order to execute that. And then once they bring on the manager, then they need to have that really important conversation with that manager about what other things do you want to take on for yourself, right? Because if the manager's the right-hand partner, there's still a lot of work to be done for that artist. And sometimes that manager might say, hey, I really just want to bring in a partner that's going to help create you as a product. And I need to bring in an ANR. Or I need to bring in a label that's going to help develop you as an artist. It's going to set up those sessions because that's not what I'm good at. I can take the products they give me and help escalate them, but I can't create them for you. And I think a lot of artists rush to check the boxes without really being critical or, or thoughtful about how they build and assemble their team to execute and do the jobs that need to be done today. And that's where you see them getting frustrated with their management teams or feeling like they, they're they're, you know, stuck at their label and the label's not doing what they want them to do. And it's because they get attached to these brand names, right? They're like, I want to work with so-and-so manager because they manage so-and-so person as an artist, or I want to go to this label because it's the home to so-and-so artists. And it's like, that's great, but are they going to help you with your needs as an artist? Forget about how you look and sound sonically and who your audience is, but like what work do you need to get done? What work are you willing to do yourself? And who do you need to help complement the skill sets that you have in-house versus what you want to outsource? So let's get into it. STEM.is. Check the show notes. Please visit it. STEM.is. So the features that you have listed there, intuitive distribution, data visualization, data visualization and insights, direct payments to collaborators, artist-friendly advances, comprehensive recruitment. Um, I, one thing that I do want to point out, which I really love because it shows a lot of the company's personality is, uh, at the top of your website, it says STEM brings clarity to your modern music business. And then later on down the page, if you scroll down, unfucking the music industry, one feature at a time. So I, there's something about a company personality that I think is super important beyond just the nuts and bolts. Um, is there something that you want to talk to in terms of that? Because I feel like it seems to be a, a core value in terms of really protecting the artist and really serving the artist and coming from that perspective. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of guiding principles 
at the company that I try to instill in everyone, which should be reflected in the way that we build our product, the way that our artist relations team interacts with our customers and our clients and the way that we behave through marketing and the way that we talk about ourselves, which is um, really two things. One, that um, the artist should be at the center of their business, but you can't assume they're doing any of the work because in fact, the majority of the music business sits on the shoulders of assistants. So in terms of product, uh, our goal is always to take these workflows that seem really complicated, that the industry traditionally has made seem really scary. So distribution is where we started. I think if you used to ask people back in the day, how do you distribute content? Even the people that work at record labels have no idea how that works. And when you go to upload your first release using other services, there's so many questions and the workflow is so complicated that you kind of get paralyzed through it. So our motto is always, how do we dumb it down to the point where an assistant won't be afraid to fuck it up? So we did that on the distribution side and now we're doing it on the accounting side and the royalty accounting because royalty accounting is the next thing that like everyone's like, oh my God, this is so complicated. I don't want to deal with it. And it's like, it's really not that complicated. It's just a series of if that, then this questions. Like if that, then do this. And there's not a system that does it because all the other software that exists is so clunky. It's meant to be used by not only like CPAs, but like most, most like business managers and royalty accounts rather use Excel than the current software that exists. So we just wanted to mystify all of these like technical calculation type of work, but effectively like all the shit that sounds scary, let's make it simple. It shouldn't be that hard. And on top of that, the only reason we learn why the deal terms are so complicated in music is because of all these precedents that have accumulated over time where someone forgot to pay someone else or someone screwed up this thing. So then they entered a term to protect themselves. So ultimately, what should be a two-page contract is a 20-page contract, an agreement, because no one trusts anyone else to actually pay them. So it's like, well, if we can actually ensure people get paid, can we simplify the way that deals are done too? Can we make them less complicated? Like, I'll give you an example. Um, producer agreements. In producer agreements, producers ask for a producer advance and then they want to see money on the first dollar, not because they're actually going to get paid the first statement that the song makes money. It's just a way of recording that they're going to get paid from the first dollar. So it's more of a timing mechanism than it is actually a cash flow mechanism. And the only reason why they ask for producer advances is because they don't trust they're ever going to see another dollar. And that to me is so silly. Like we are creating so much work for ourselves. And this is why one of the reasons why I think the music industry is fucked is because trust doesn't exist. And so all of the complicated nature of the business and the rules and regulations that exist are because no one trusts each other. And the complexity is compounded by the amount of growth from the explosion of new content being created. Like this stuff is more manageable. This business was more manageable 10 years ago when there were three major labels, four major labels, call it back then, each having a couple hundred artists and on average having tens and thousands of releases a year. Today, you have millions of creators, thousands of artists at each label, if not tens and thousands of artists at each label. There's only thousands at like the independent distribution arm or the major. So just think about how many other artists are signed through all the subsidiaries that roll up to the major. It's tens of thousands of artists, I'm sure. Millions of copyrights, tens of millions of copyrights and 60,000 new songs a day. How the hell do you keep track of all of that? Most of it isn't, it seems. It's not. <laughs> you can see it. It's so messy and it's so dirty. And so if we want to untangle this mess, we're trying to do it at what we think of as like the entry point, which is through the song. Let's like clean things up on the song level. Let's create a system that other people, when they collaborate on that song, can make simpler deals because they know they're going to get paid because we're involved. And if we do that well, and if we can extend that same ethos across all the other revenue streams of the artists and all of the product categories, whether or not we're the distributor, quite frankly, we think we can unfuck the business. Amen. So you're, the way you demonstrate like a very intimate artist perspective is clear, I think, in some of the recent initiatives that STEM has been doing. So one is scale the artist investment when they need um, funds in a way that is good for them. STEM check, which is uh, 
financial counseling, I guess I'll put it in a way, but you can better describe it, obviously. Yeah. And then most recently in August of this year, it was announced uh, recoup rules. So can you go over those, please? Yeah, I'd love to. So let's start in sequential order here. Um, we launched the STEM check because um, a couple of years ago, I'll never forget this sort of aha moment for me. It was around January when Coachella 2019 was announced, right? I think we had a Coachella in 2019. No, we didn't. That's 2018. That was the last Coachella. 2019. No, we're both looking at each other. 2019, I think, was the last Coachella because 2020 is when it was canceled. So 2019. Um, and when it got announced, we were stoked. Like 30% of that roster was on STEM. We had so many artists that were on STEM that were performing. Everyone from Childish Gambino and Bad Bunny and uh, Shaq West and a bunch of other people. Um, Masego performed that year. And we were like, oh, my God. Like so many of these cool new artists are on step. Cut to April. April, when Coachella happens, we look at the same roster and half of those guys were no longer on STEM because they took major label deals or some kind of other deal uh, from another competitor. And we're pretty close with our clients. So we knew what those deals and what those terms were. And every time I looked at the terms, I was so sick to my stomach. I was like, I can't believe you're signing these deals with the exception of one. There's one deal where I was like, dude, you got to take this check. This is stupid money. They're never going to recoup and it's in your favor. Just do it. Um, you guys can probably guess who that is on your own. Uh, and in most cases, what I realized is that these managers, when they were reviewing these deals, they were just looking at the high level number and the number of years they'd be signed to the deal. They didn't really understand the dynamics of what the other terms meant in terms of how they recoup, what is recoupable, what um, what the fee means if the, if they recoup out of 100% or it's net the distro fee and other fees, right? And I was like, hey, let me actually just like make a model for you really quickly so you could see the cash flow to break even and understand what you're signing up for in various scenarios of growth. And we started doing this really casually and it became incredibly useful because some of them were able to negotiate better terms once the managers understood what it meant to pay back. And I was like, I feel like we should make this available to more people. So we launched the STEM check later that year. And uh, it was open office hours where anyone could sign up to um, bring us deal terms, either ones that they got or ones they were considering or sort of give us scenarios that were hypothetical. We sat with them. We sat, we sat our um, finance team with the client and the manager. And we built a really lightweight model for them. We did over 60 meetings in the first month, which was like a lot of time to dedicate, but we learned a lot about the deal flow. And I was like, all right, there's no good alternative here for these people to have a better option to access capital. Let's just create it. And so we did. And that's what led to um, STEM scale. And what we wanted to do in presenting offers to clients was one, give them control over the terms. Um, and create a model which actually incentivizes them to take only the money they need up front so they can pay the lowest possible fee. And then as they start to recoup, be able to tap in and take more money and have it more accessible. But the three things that we wanted them to understand is, one, how much do they have to pay back at the end? Because I think when you talk about revenue shares, right, even a 25-75% deal, 25-75 split in favor of the artist sounds like a good deal. But what most people don't realize is that it's a 33% fee because you're only recouping out of the 75%. So if your client is growing uh, linearly, that's fine. If your client's growing exponentially, now you're fucked. Now the IRR is even worse because you're paying a lot, you're, that 25% when you're making 10 grand a month is 2,500. But if the artist scales to making hundred grand, now you're suddenly paying $25,000 a month in fees. That's, that's nuts. So it's, it's not aligned with the artist's success, right? It's, it ends up being a good deal if you're not growing exponentially, but if you are, they're going to make more money than you will on that. Um, and even like a 50-50 net profit share agreement has an explicit 100% fee because you're only recouping out of your 50%. And I think many people don't realize that. Um, and so we show them the exact fee, but we lock it in. So after you pay it down, that's it. You're not paying us an additional fee in perpetuity. So you know always what you're paying back and what your cost of capital is. 
And it's just a way of presenting data that most people are not familiar with. It takes a lot of education, but ultimately once it clicks, managers are like, oh my God, this is so much better because you're not even, we're not taking outsized risk. So that created that. And then we realized our clients, when we give them advances, they need tools to keep track of how they're spending and investing in themselves and what that means for their collaborators. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but Meek Mill tweeted a couple of weeks ago in anger at his label. He's like, I need to know right now how much money you've spent on me and how much money I've made because I've never seen a dollar. And that's crazy to me. And he's not the only one. Kanye bitched about that too last year. And you hear more artists who are just frustrated because they take this big advance, but they don't know why they're not seeing another dollar. And by the way, neither do the songwriters and producers, which is why they all ask for advances too when they go on a project. Um, so we're like, all right, well, we should just create a really easy tool to track the expenses against a project so that it automatically recoups and everyone's in the know. So that the artist isn't yelling at the label, where's my money? They can log into their dashboard and see, oh yeah, I forgot. I spent 50 grand recording this record in Hawaii for a week. So that needs to recoup. And even though the records made 10 million streams at an average stream rate of 4,000 a stream, 4,000 for every million plays, like you're not recouped yet, dude. So you mentioned earlier that artists should sort of treat their careers as if they're a founder and they're sort of looking for roles to fill or looking for the gaps to fill. So in 2018, you parted ways with your co-founders and you pivoted as you mentioned, from distribution to more financial tools, which is, you know, scale came out of that. It's remarkable to me how much your drive to give creators careers and not just hobbies is reflected in your commitment to that vision. But how did you know that particular pivot was the right decision to make? Or how do you know when to like second guess how you're executing your vision and when to double down on it? Yeah, it was one of the absolute hardest decisions to make. And it's one that we deliberated for two years. Um, so when we first launched STEM, we were invite only for a really long time. And in fact, we were never not invite only. Uh, what ended up happening is we grew through the viral loop of someone getting paid as a collaborator who then had access to upload new content. So if you had invite as a collaborator, you got through the back door. And you could use STEM just like everyone else could. And me and my co-founders um, ultimately had, while we had the same ultimate vision in mind, the people that we had in our heads as like our core customer were different. And for me, I came from the major agency business where I saw the pain points on behalf of more established artists with management teams. And for them, they came at it as hobbyist musicians who had a lot of friends who were also doing music on the side. And that's who they had in mind as the core customers. So when you talk about independent artists, there's a spectrum of the size of artists. And it's not to say that um, theirs was wrong and mine was right. It's just that it was different. And so we would butt heads against each other quite frequently around what are the pain points for our customers? Because it took us a year and a half to realize that we were talking about different customers. And if you want to solve the pain point for the DIY sector, it's really more of the distro kid and tune court model where you charge a flat fee and you figure out how to support them with services that help them get their first head start on the business, help them launch. Whereas the customers that I had in mind were already big enough and making enough money where their big pain points was about managing all of the people that they were working with and collaborating and making sure that those people were taking care of getting paid so that they can continue to collaborate more freely and grow. Different pain points. Um, and they had more of a team around them. So the complexity of the deals were increasing. And with a small company, you can't spread yourself thin on product vision. You can't solve for too many types of customers. So we had to come with the really hard decision either to double down on the DIY sector, which we didn't think we could do anything that was that differentiated, right? Which you see United Masters, District Tune, Core, CD Baby, all existing and addressing what we thought that customer needed. 
but where we thought there were huge gaps that no one was paying attention to was this growing sector of the middle class of artists that were pretty much businesses run by managers and artists together where they didn't have any financial tools available to them. They didn't have any accounting software that they were willing to use. And they needed more hands-on support and more concierge-style services. And we just wanted to double down on that sector that we felt was being completely overlooked in the industry. And we thought had the most opportunity to grow. And we just could not serve both well. And so it was having to make that really difficult compromise of letting go of a constituent that we really loved and were excited about potentially helping to grow, but knowing that if we were to continue working with them, it would hold us back from actually innovating on the business that we saw an opportunity for. I want to end with um, this question because in an interview with Authority Magazine, you share five leadership lessons you've learned from your experience in co-founding and leading STEM. And the fifth lesson is writing an annual win list. Okay. So what's your win list this year? Oh my God, you guys are totally calling me out. I didn't do one for this year. <laughs> it is a really good one. And you really dug into your research on me before this, which I appreciate. I didn't write it out, but because usually it's like 10 things. There were really only two that I wanted for this year. One was to launch Riku. And the other one was to have a project that would be nominated for a Grammy. And, I, and we have one that's in consideration with um, Brent Fayez and Drake called Wasting Time. And hopefully we'll get that all the way through. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Milana. Is there anything you'd like to plug or leave the listeners with about yourself or anything you're doing? I'm sure there's tons of things, but I'll take a moment instead and say thank you to you guys for having me and really having such a thoughtful discussion and tying so many parts of my journey together into a conversation. Of course. It's our pleasure. You make it easy. Thanks, all. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right. Subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.